in relation to Elon mm. Musk and various Branson and various these crazy people, or you know the the homeless guy, you know, you know in the alleyway in the corner. Which of those versions of unhousedness is the craziest, most traumatized, most disturbed, most disturbing? I think the jury would have to be out, wouldn't it? You know, the, um, the, you know I, I, I can't, I can sort of see that in a way the guy in the alleyway at least, is, at least sort of knows why what he's doing. He knows why he's doing it. He's trying to find a justification. He's trying to find his way. The idea of, you know, an endlessly deferred, shove it into the future, shove it into the, you know, in, in, into outer space, go and colonize another. You know, planet without learning anything about the failure of colonization on this one um, it, it is a bit mad. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So today we're meeting with John Adlam and Chris Scanlon. Uh, Chris and John are both psychotherapists and they work together at the Henson Hospital, which was sadly and unjustly defunded in 2008. Having said that, they prefer to think of themselves as working and thinking as interprofessional and transdisciplinary. They've worked together intellectually for about 20 years and written a number of papers around the theme of the unhoused mind. In 2022, they published the highly praised book, Psychosocial Explorations of Trauma, Exclusion and Violence, Unhoused Minds and Inhospitable Environments. So Chris is a psychosocial consultant stroke researcher and consultant psychotherapist in forensic and adult mental health. He's a training group analyst and uh, works at the Institute of Group Analysis and the Irish Group Analytic Society. And he's a founder member of the Association for Psychosocial Studies. John is a group psychotherapist and independent researcher working mainly in the National Health Service. He's a founder member of the Association for Psychosocial Studies and former vice president of the International Association for Forensic Psychotherapy. Welcome to you both. Good to meet you. Thank you very much. Hi, good to have you back on again, Chris, and also good to meet you, John, and, and have you on. Thanks for coming on. Could we begin with you telling us a little bit about your backgrounds? Are you interested in, in how you met and established enough of a connection to want to write together regularly over such a long period? Who wants to go first? <laughs> Otherwise, it'll be like a group meeting. Yes. So, so we, well, you, 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 as you've mentioned, we, we met at the uh, Working for Henderson Hospital. Uh, so I joined the Henderson Outreach Team in 2001. Chris was already there, uh, been there a few years before. Um, and the outreach service um, had a very particular role of consulting to uh, 
well, as, as we started to think about it, of kind of consulting to the out-group and its relationship to the in-group, by which we mean specifically that um, people referred to the therapeutic community for the year's residential treatment, um, had to work out whether they wanted to present to a selection group uh, of the community to to uh, be taken into the community. And uh, the outreach, one of the tasks of the outreach team was to help them think about whether they wanted to come in from the cold that far uh, or, or whether that was um, maybe just uh, not the right thing at the right time. Um, and um, and so we, we um, well, uh, I, I guess I joined Chris in that project and we started, that's how we started thinking together about the sort of mad offer that we were making. Hey, uh, come out from your place, wherever, wherever it is you're holed up, uh, come in, come you know, halfway across the country for a year, no individual therapy, everything's done in groups, woken up any time of day or night for uh, community meetings at the drop of a hat, um, uh, no medication, no coercion, how about it? And learning something about the madness of the offer was uh, 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 we were making, um, as well as the importance of it, was was some part of how this all started. Well, as you were talking, I was just thinking you probably have to be quite a, an unorthodox person to go and work in that environment, actually, from a practitioner's point of point of view, it's not it's not mainstream um, psychiatric services, is it? And I wonder if that says something about the character of both of you that you were suited to work in this kind of kind of service. Does that set you apart in some way and and suggest that you'd have something in common at least? One of one of the, one of the uh, jokes at the Henderson um, was that you know, it was a therapeutic community, so the staff didn't wear badges and the residents didn't wear badges. It was before those days, and um, there were regular visitors would come along, and, uh, and they would be very because we did everything to, together communally. It was never entirely clear who was the who were the residents and who were the staff, and. Uh, one of the jokes was always that the difference between the residents and the staff was that the, the residents got better and left. <laughs> um, and I always thought that was saying something about, you know, the sort of madness required or, you know, the challenge required to, to not leave. And, and in a way, I, I don't know whether you stayed, many of the staff, I think, probably stayed a bit too long anyway, but, uh, but it was something about recognising that you, know, you were bringing something of yourself, and 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 that needed to. I mean, part of the structure of the treatment was very clearly it was about um, the relationship between something called psychotherapy that was problematized, um, and something called sociotherapy, which was about trying to be a human being alongside other human beings who who were struggling, and. Uh, and it was, as I say, it was never entirely clear who was struggling the most, whether it was the staff or the residents. But, but I think that certainly what was required of the staff was to unpick their definition of themselves as a psycho person, whether that's a psychiatric nurse or a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a psychotherapist, and find a way to join in um, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the community. 
which I think is is quite an invitation. It's also a mad invitation. Saint John, it's a mad invitation to the residents. I think it's also a, a very challenging and fairly mad invitation to the staff. That, you know, you might think that you knew what you were doing before you came here in terms of your role or identity, um, and then we're going to unpick it now, and you're going to have to find a new one and a new way of being. Um, and, the, and I think you're right, it's not for everyone. But there was something about you two where you felt you could write together and you've done so repeatedly um, since that time. Mm. What, what, are, what are some of the benefits you get from working together on, on projects? One of, one of the things was that, in a way, it was a, a bit of a coincidence in some ways uh, in that uh, uh, Stella Weldon, who's a colleague uh, of ours, you, you'll know probably, um, you know, she was writing, a, uh, I think, a special edition for group analysis, a journal on forensic work, um, and asked for some contributions. And I think, if I recall it, you know, she asked John and I separately, Given that we were sitting in an open plan office a few yards from each other, we sort of thought, well, why don't we half the effort and do it together? Although I'm not sure that it halved the effort, but we doubled the effort, but we did it together anyway. And uh, and I think it sort of started from there. And so I think, you know, Stella, who I think has been very influential in a lot of people's careers, I think was certainly very influential in this aspect of, of mine anyway, and ours in terms of the writing. So it was a wasn't wasn't particularly intended, I don't mm. think. Um, uh, but then twenty years later, still still doing it. So um, thanks, Estella. Yeah, yeah. We didn't we didn't know that it would be twenty years and counting. Um, well, it's it's um, it's eighteen years from when that piece uh, was published, and so it's probably yeah, t- twenty one years or something since we started it. I think, um, I think we uh, that that she did invite us both speaks to some sort of shared ground and or perception of shared ground. Um, but I think it's just been really good fun to uh, to not know the ground. Well, speaking for myself, that I stand on, um, but also I I value immensely um, giving up the uh, the sort of. Uh, I suppose the well, I may not, I may not have achieved this, but giving out the narcissism of how a paper would look if you wrote it yourself, um, uh, in order to discover uh, what comes of, of you know minds yeah. coming together, um, I, I still, yeah. I still, you know, it still surprises and um, uh, well delights me um, that process. Uh, yeah, that. And, and I would just add that I think that does very much linked to the office that we were in at the time, which was at the Henderson, you know, where, in a way, if you, were, if you, if you weren't doing it with other people, yeah, you would, you would wonder why, you know, if, if you were doing something on your own, this was, this was always a sense of, you know, that was a bit of a problem, you know, why are you doing it on your own? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both in terms of an invitation to join in, but also a sort of critique, really, around you know, the individualistic nature of some of the problems that we were trying to address. Thank you. Yeah, well, you, Sorry, you've put that very well, but, but there's, I think, rather a lovely little description in your book. I can't remember if it's at the beginning or the end, where you 
say something about the process of writing over this period of 20 years, which has sometimes been a challenge. I think you put it that at times you'd, you'd wish the other one wasn't there. Um, but other times it's obviously been very creative and fulfilling. John must have written that. If he... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's either or. I think I think those must go alongside each other, kind of. That that um, there's something about uh, um, dis well, we 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 there's a particular theme about kind of disappointing and um, and how we might kind of disappoint each other and what we do with each other's drafts and that sort of at that sort of level but also of uh, well i don't know that this sounds like i'm um saying we've got this right but i have no idea if we've got this right but a sort of practice of not knowing how it's going to turn out is is sometimes a, a bit of a white knuckle ride but yeah thank you and we i suppose we've established that there's some similarities between you in terms of your tolerance of of a less commonplace work environment but for, for our listeners I think they might find it quite interesting to have a bit of insight into what the difference is between the group analyst and the group psychotherapist because it's different trainings isn't, isn't it and I think uh, you know you can help me understand the different approaches um, I think people would probably find that useful um. Shall I, shall I have a go at that one? Um, uh, go on. I think, you know, Freud's, one of Freud's ideas about the narcissism of small difference, I think, comes into play in that, you know, to, to, to all intents and purposes, I don't make any particular distinction between group work in terms of a way of thinking about how to be in a group, regardless of where that group happens to be. Um, but some groups are, are you know, sort of defined by the system as having patients in them or clients or service users or whatever it happens to be. And, um, and, and you know, I think those places and spaces are called psychotherapy spaces. You know, so group psychotherapy, I think, is defined by the client group. But I, 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 I think that, you know, linked to that earlier conversation about what's the difference between the patients and the staff within a therapeutic community, I think the, par the parallel process is that in order to be effective working with people that might be called patients in groups, um, you also have to have places for the staff who work with the patients in groups to have groups to belong to, you know, so that there's something about, you know, uh, you know the, the parallel process in a sense is that I don't think that any of us can work effectively in the systems of care unless we as workers have places and spaces to be and if we think about that you know, group analytically then you know you don't call it group psychotherapy you would call it group work or reflective practice or organizational consultancy but i think the same skills and same attitude um, has to be brought to bear you know so um, particularly around relationships of power and authority and the meanings of hierarchies and those sorts of things that as staff members were very, very fond of using as defense shields, you know, who's who's in charge of whom. Um, with that, uh, and I think in order, to, you know, in order to be effective as a, a psychotherapist, whatever that is, I think you also have to be very mindful of 
these issues of power, inclusion, exclusion, and how they play out in the system as a whole. You know, so I, I, I don't think there's a, a, a distinction that I think is meaningful other than the context in which the work takes place. Thank you. I prefer, I prefer the word, I prefer group analyst because I, I think that that's the sort of overarching thing, you know. Um, I, having said that, I would also add that I think in terms of the book, um, I think we do describe ourselves as psychosocialists. Um, you know, so I would see that the psychosocial frame is the widest, the, the frame under which group dynamics and group work sits anyway, you know, so because I think the psychosocial involves the socio-political and so you think about these group dynamics and how they're played out not only in small groups and clinical groups and therapy groups and staff groups and organizational groups, but also in communities, neighborhoods, and and on, on the global stage. I think we, we are, I think, wanting to bring the same lens um, to all of these perspectives, I think, really. Thank you. Was there anything you wanted to add to that, John, at all? Um, uh, yeah, uh, I think just to say that it's been it's been interesting, quite how how often it's sort of um, um, suggested or presumed that we've got an axe to grind about more psychotherapy, or even more group psychotherapy. Whereas this book is not uh, about that at all. It, it, uh, um, that that psychotherapy might be some small and secondary part of the societal response to the sorts of things that we're trying to get a grip on but um uh we we, 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 we don't have those axes to grind and and those and um even you know even even the question um what's the difference between a you know a group psychotherapist and a group analyst which is uh, i mean uh, if, if if it's a patient that's asking that in private practice of course the, the must get a full answer about the training and so on but in the wider sense um it, it it just speaks to some of the kind of guild wars um that get in the way of the societal response really to uh the difficulties we're trying to describe and work with in the book yeah, maybe if i could add just one more thing is that i think the problematic is the sigh in the psych bit um me and so if there's an axe to grind it's not that we need more psych people um, but that really we've neglected the training and the development of all sorts of social workers and nurses and project workers and prison officers and you know and the, and the sorts of people that are working in groups with very trou uh, troubled and problematic people and I don't think we need more psychs if anything we need more socios um, because I think the problems that we're wanting to address are much more in the social and political places than in the consulting rooms of psychotherapists of various sorts. So. Let, let's move on a bit. Um, so what I wanted to move on to really was your use of the um, uh, idea of the uh, Diogenes paradigm. You talk about Diogenes a lot in the book what do you what do you mean by that what's what's it what meaning are you trying to convey by the use of that 
Um, the, I think the, 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 the first thing to say about uh, our use of that story is that it is a story that we're using. Um, and um, and the, the importance of, of story and storytelling, uh, I hope, sort of shines through the, 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 the whole of the book. But it's a particular story because it's a story of a, of a homeless, migrant, excluded, colonised, shamed uh, outsider. Um, and uh, his travels, but but also his his in, his encounters with power, um, and um, and with offers of inclusion uh, made on terms that he can't accept, and so we we uh, I suppose trying to play with telling a story underneath the story, um, uh, um, for for what it for what the for what the received story of the, of the you know, the ancient traveling philosopher tells us about um the psychosocial dynamics that we're trying to address so um when when we rather grandly say well here's a paradigm um all, all that we mean is that if you if you if you take the key elements of this story and use and, and, and use it as a sort of grind it into a lens uh, in which to look at um, um, uh, problematic um, areas in the field of health and social care, but also just at, at, the, at the global scale in all the different scales um, of, of group activity in Gaia, you can look at. Uh, uh, all these difficulties through this lens, and and hopefully, um, it will illuminate uh, uh, some of what's going on in in the way that famously the old guy used to wander around carrying a, a torch in broad daylight, looking for one honest man, or kind of just trying to get hold of what's going on in 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 apparently intractable psychosocial dynamics and. The story is our is our tool, um, partly because we uh, make a point of n not wanting to use other people's stories. So um, we there's there's no such this is it's not a clinical book, but there's certainly nothing that looks like clinical material in it. So we're using parable and storytelling and poetry and myth and allegory um, partly to rectify a sort of disrespect that uh, we may have partly been involved in in the past in sort of trying to tell people stories for them. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a very illuminating statement you've made there, I think, uh, John, particularly in your reference to not wanting to use the stories of others. Um, and indeed, we could fill the hour with the little aphorisms that come from Diogenes, I expect, who was clearly highly skilled in yeah, exposing the naked emperor to light. Um, you also made reference to Gaia theory as well, I think, then in your answer, John. And I, unless I missed that when, when my mm -hmm. internet connection dropped, I think it would be helpful, I think, for you to give a bit of an explanation of, of that as well for anyone listening. Um, 
Yes, uh, by that uh, by that reference, we mean thinking about um, the, the planetary system as um, as an or- organism or, or as an organic system. More, more to the point, it's not. It gets personified. It's not. It's not a being, but um, the planetary system. As, a, as an organically interlinked system, uh, which is uh, uh, which is basically the centre of Gaia theory, um, is is one of the things that we try to stupid to call it a thing. One, one of the phenomena that we uh, uh, that we try to look at in considering um, how um, various uh, well numerous psychosocial difficulties are, are interconnected um, but but also at a, at a at more straightforward level this is the the day after Earth Day weekend isn't it um, we we are um, we are in the Anthropocene age where human action is the major driver of geological change and the Gaia system is 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 colossal colossally destabilized by our activity although it will restabilize itself better than perhaps we will be able to. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thanks. So just going back to Diogenes, do you envisage that the the example of Diogenes relates to your idea of the unhoused mind? I mean, I, he lives in a barrel, so I suppose there's some connection there. How else? Uh, I suppose I, I just if I just take that up in a way is that I, it's about maybe what what I think I would try not to say, um, and I think what what I think I'm, I'm anyway we're trying not to say I think. Is, is that if we understand the world in relation to that some of us are unhoused and others of us are securely housed, um, then we perpetuate a sort of relationship between you know problematic uh, uh, um, subgroups, if you like, because in a way, you know, if if we together aren't housed together within the planetary system, or whether it gets called Gaia or whatever it called it gets called, you know, then there is a disharmony in which no one is housed securely, mm-hmm. so that so you know so an injury to one is an injury to all, as it were, in the, in that sense. So I think, um, and that's where I think we're trying to you know move away from descriptions or de- definitions of um, individual psychological trauma as guiding the, the narrative or the story, um, but re- really thinking that what guides the story of the unhoused minds is the unhospit- inhospitable environment. You know, so the relationship between uh, an environment that is not housing, not hospitable, not conducive um, to connectedness and relatedness, and you know the, 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 those sorts of ideas that you, John, were you, you were just evoking, on houses as all. Um, um, so that, so um, and I think sometimes there is a sense in which you know get mistaken to be saying you know that there are. Um, you know, traumatized individuals. You know who the, who the you know we the less traumatized people need to um, feel sorry for. Whereas in a way we need to all, we know we need to think about the ways in which we're all um, 
trying to negotiate an inhospitable environment in ways that's unhousing of all of us all of the time um, and that you know try to try and break down that us and themness you know so i think it's it's more in a way if you know if you put the you know, foreground the unhoused minds or foreground the inhospitable environment it is somehow trying to sort of say that they you know in that gestalt you can't look at one without the other um, and if you look at the inhospitability in hospitality or hospitality or as, as you might have it um, then, then we're all unhoused one way or the other and do you Thank see you. psychologists, psychotherapists, group analysts, mental health professionals, people working in, uh, you know, psychological ways of working, do you see us as having a particular responsibility for helping people understand that perspective? We, beyond that of other members of society, I mean, do we, as people working in psychological ways of understanding the world and people, do we have a particular responsibility for taking on some of these issues and trying to affect change in a, in a different way to other members of society? Well, one of the things in the book that I think sort of highlighting really is, is that many, many of us, particularly perhaps those who identify in as psychologists and psychotherapists, need to get out more. Um, you know, that, that's a sort of central invitation, really. Come out of the consulting room, come out of the manual, come out of the three-letter acronyms, you know, DBT, CBT, MBT, and all the others, um, into much more of an engagement, you know, with other members of the multidisciplinary team, for instance, you know, to imagine that, you know, we're working, if we're going to work effectively, we have to work together and and there's various papers that come to mind, you know, the, there's a nice paper I liked, you know, the other 23 hours, you know, working on residential settings, you know, psychological psychotherapist comes, does their hour of, you know, intense intervention. Um, meanwhile, you know, the prison officers, the nurses, the social, residential social workers are looking after very difficult, traumatised people for the other 23 hours. And so you think, well, what, what, where might you put your energy if you were looking at that as a metric? I think you'd probably want to think about the other 23 hours um, in, in a in more detailed and in-depth way. Whereas, I, And I do think that increasingly we're living in a, a world that is psychological, psychologicalizing and individualizing and personalizing a lot of problems, um, which I think is, a, a, what we're saying in the book, is a a psychosocial defence. It's a retreat. Uh, it's a retreat from the agora. It's a retreat from the marketplace. It's a retreat from conversations in public, so that you know conversations about what's going on get go behind closed doors. Whether that's it psychologically, or whether that's in financial industries and banking or politics or whatever, you know, um, so, so much is not happening in public. So much is happening in private, behind closed doors, um, and, and that this is part of the problem. So the invitation is to all psychologists, psychotherapists, but also everyone else, really, to, to get out more, you know, to engage more with each other, part of the democratic process, if you like, the political process, be involved in community life, whatever that means, um, think about and talk about the issues that are 
in a bedeviling society, whether it's you know the climate, migration, racism, war, um, and the list goes on, rather than think that there is something important about talking to a couple, a small number of people for a very short time about their childhoods. You know, let, let's 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 think, let's get some sense of proportion and balance. I think, and and, and I think certainly they. I think we're quite strongly critical, either directly or indirectly, about the psych industry that privileges certain ways of working, certainly within mental health services, for instance. Yeah, the, um, we, we're also trying to think about what practice of equality looks like and feels like, and at that point, a question about privileging one or two professional guilds over voices of lived experience is kind of automatically um, a, um, a sort of status quo question. Right? So um, we, we kind of busy trying to talk ourselves out of, a, of having a professional role. And of course, we, we attained this platform by having one. So there's a paradox, but um, the, 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 the voices of lived experience um, are um, um, written out of, of many of the histories that we kind of receive uh, and um, and to to find where the conversations are um, rather than uh, feel that we've got some special authority to instigate them is, is I think, important part of what I want to say to that. You know, how, how, how to... Um, you know how to how, how to come together in groupings and uh, alliances and coalitions uh, and communities and find out what it is about taking up membership of those communities that is uh, essentially human in a in a creative way um, so whereas whereas we tend to I'm not complaining about the question, but we tend to get lost in that question. We tend to question what 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 can what can we do, um, rather than um, what's to be done. I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that's what I was really really asking. Mm, I was thinking mm. about you know if these expensive, lengthy trainings that people mm. people do, and so I, th I think there's something about the balance of where you turn that skill and I can very much see an argument for actually the state of society at the moment seems to be pretty much of a mess so actually are is it somewhat a waste of resources even if you look at an individual level when if people aren't safe you know if they haven't got food security you haven't got a safe safe house fuel poverty all that that sort of stuff people aren't in a position of safety can they really do the individual work that's necessary so you know maybe it is better to put our resources into more societal issues, but I, I suppose what I was curious about was whether there's a, a particular responsibility for psych professionals to do that as opposed to people coming from a geographical or historical perspectives. You know, are we just are we talking about a, a human um, responsibility, or is there a particular responsibility for psych professionals to to shift yeah. their focus and and then what do you do with the individual who's extremely dis distressed who is wanting something to help them with their own specific unique individual mm. needs at that point in, in time because I suspect 
that there are patients who wouldn't be very happy at the idea of, well, we're not going to work with you as individuals because we're busy trying to shape society in a, in a way that's, that's, that's better. Yes, it's 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 a it's a fair challenge, and um, uh, no, I, I, it's not like I haven't got the day job. So uh, I, I I work in specialist psychotherapy. Well, I work in a specialist psychotherapy service, and I work as a sort of specialist psych contributor of a kind in another service. So um, I do all that, and and it may be that I well, I often do ask myself why I'm doing it, but I certainly do carry on doing it. Um, but I think that um, um, professions uh, are, are kinds of organisations and institutions, and um, and self-preservation uh, becomes their primary task. And so I want to be I want to be uh, as humbly reflective about my own practice as I can, and and try and catch where I am caught up in the privatising of distress rather than the publicizing of distress and that and usually to ask that kind of question is to find oneself not speaking out about the ways in which one is ethically compromised by the offer one is caught up in making within the system of care though the book is not just about the system of care yeah i think there's another i think another another parallel though to the question um to my mind is is, a, is is the metaphor of the of the colonial you know, taking over of somebody else's country is, is a bit like taking over of someone else's mind. You know, the, the idea that, that, that the psych professions consider, don't consider sufficiently the, uh, the, the privilege and the power that goes with that privilege is akin in many ways and maybe a direct consequence of the sort of whiteness and white privileging of white people who don't think about the nature of the the privilege, you know, the privilege that we that we have as white people, and so the invitation to the people in the psych industry, you know, regardless of their you know ethnic identity, is to think about the ways in which the psych industry is very concerned and preoccupied with maintaining its own privileged position within society, um, and 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 if we if we and so in a, in a way, I think there is something that we can directly do which is have a look at ourselves and and how you know how our privilege operates you know we particularly in, in in psych industries particularly i guess psychiatry psychology psychotherapy um you know who who have enormous power huge power and privilege over over the people that they purport to help and treat Without necessarily always thinking about that, um, I, you know, I, I think we, we we do need to think more about that, really. And I think it, and I think, and I think it's also at one level, it, you know, it's a sort of mathematical metric, really, isn't it? Goes maybe back to the earlier question: is if we are going to do something called psychotherapy, which is sitting and thinking and talking to each other. Why, for instance, would we privilege individual psychotherapy over group psychotherapy, which, of course, many of the psych industries do? Because mathematically, numerically, that doesn't doesn't work out. You know, there aren't enough individual therapists to go around um, anyway. And if we, uh, uh, but I do think that the point that was made earlier is that 
the clients, the service users, and us as clients and service users, we're terrified of groups. We don't want to be in groups. We want individual connections. We want that sort of comfort. We don't want to share. We don't want to negotiate space. We don't want to think together. You know, it involves compromise and disappointment and but I think in the book what we're saying is these are the these are the this is the these are the foci for what we could or should be doing. You know, thinking about how we don't negotiate space, share space. You know, we we all want our separate, individual, personalised space. Um, and as long as that is colluded with reciprocally, then we don't do any groups. We don't have communities. We don't think about. Cooperation, you know, cooperation and collaboration in organisations. It becomes competitive rivalry. You know, anyway, I, hmm. I feel like a rant there. But um. well, if I, if I, if I just sort of add a, a coda of rant, <laughs> but I think um, I mean two two examples of uh, that might kind of illustrate why uh, I'm not going to sort of cancel all my one-to-one appointments right now but still have something to do and say about this one is about the um what i think is the in the book it's uh, a thread throughout the the pathologization of the avoidant or or so-called refusing response to the hostile environment of the say the consulting room um and um uh, or the offer of housing um or you know, um, school refusal, or any any one of a host of, of examples where you sort of uh, there must be something wrong with you if you're not accepting this offer on the terms on which it's offered, and the the way to eliminate that is to, is to is to speak about one toxic attribution in particular, which which we kind of renounce at the beginning of the book, and that is the idea that something all the sort of, of personality pathology. Well, there must be something pathologically wrong with your personality if you're if you're not being a good patient and making me feel like a bad doctor this is this has been written about a lot and i won't go into it but working in systems where this is still the diagnostic framework uh involves a level of of ethical compromise that was is not well an unacceptable level of compromise so let's not do that Let's not say it's a problem of personality or it's behavioural. Let's find out what it is about our offer that can't that the person in question or the people in question can't take it up right now. That's one example. The other example is, yes, uh, uh, carry on our, our practice in inside and outside of institutions. But uh, if these institutions are structurally racist, how to practice ethically? Uh, and not reproduce those relations of do- domination um, that permeate the system. Well, it's uh, of course next to impossible not not to reproduce it by taking if you're taking a a wage, you know, a salary at the end of the month as I still am doing from such organisations. But it, it then it does behove us to 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 not just go along with it. So going along with stuff less and getting out more is at least some of where where the where the conversation might begin, I think. Yes, I kind of see what you mean. I I mean I, I want to stress that that the purpose of this conversation, in my mind at any rate, is because I think there's a lot of meat in your book. So the purpose is to kind of extract some 
themes which help me and perhaps then other people to mm. understand the, the sort of themes. And what I am experiencing is a real tug between the social, political and the group and the individual, all of which makes a lot of sense. Um, but but makes it difficult for me to kind of pick up the kind of themes which I feel comfortable with. Um, if you see what I mean. Mm. So I kind of I'm still wanting to know about this concept of the unhoused mind and how you think it affects. I, I almost had to say, to say it, individuals. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that's, uh, first of all, to say, I think that's lovely feedback. Um, and um, uh, if, if we're onto anything at all, then, then we are onto something unsettling. Um, and, and if, uh, as Chris was saying earlier, if we are all discussing placed or, or unsettled or unseated by the Anthropocene and the end times of carbon capitalism or, or however we might frame it um, and all, all our preconceptions are up for grabs but if we're dissociated from that so as to survive it then um, it, it will be it will be unsettling to try and not dissociate from it. Okay, what 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 is going on here? What's being perpetuated here? So, the, that that's the sort of the the the, the macro level. If if settledness, um, in the sort of psychosocial sense, is is a, is a is a is a value located in a time when settledness was possible, then uh, then what? Um, but I think I think it, to, to 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 think about the individual. Um, I, th I I I think the well, I mean, we, we talk about this in the book. The met the, the the metaphor or the um, image of of a housed mind is is very familiar, and the language is uh, sort of steeped with such images and the literature. Going back to Freud and Jung, well, going back to Greeks and Shakespeare, and going back a long way uh, in in English language, has 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 house and home um, as as places where one feels safe enough, um, and and unhousedness uh, is 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 a state of of being dis of feeling displaced from membership um uh, of a uh, 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 group and community membership that might feel like home um so that's 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 the sort of starting point uh and, and I, I, I could sort of pick it up, pick it up hmm. a bit, you know in terms of you know an unhoused mind is that you know you, i think we could often you know locate it and you know, locate the disturbance in particular places particular people particular types of people 
And, and the one, you know, the association that came to my mind trying to sort of think about the extreme differences about how the lived experience of the unhoused mind um, and which is the crazier version, uh, if, you, if you want to, which is the more traumatized version, you know, which is crazier, the idea that if you spend billions and billions of dollars to build a space rocket to go and colonize Mars because, because the Earth is so fucked that we can't live here anymore. Um, but I'll be all right because I've got a space rocket and I'm going to colonize, which is actually happening. In, in relation to Elon mm-hmm. Musk and various Branson and various these crazy people, or you know the the homeless guy, you know, you know in the alleyway in the corner. Which of those versions of unhousedness is the craziest, most traumatized, most disturbed, most disturbing? I think the jury would have to be out, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, the, you know, I, I, I can't, I can sort of see that in a way the guy in the alleyway at least, is, at least sort of knows why, what he's doing, he knows why he's doing it, he's trying to find a justification, he's trying to find his way, the idea of, you know, an endlessly deferred, shove it into the future, shove it into the, you know, in, in, into outer space, go and colonize another, you know, planet without learning anything about the failure of colonization on this one. Um, it is a bit mad, you know. So who's the more unhoused, um, you know, uh, as it were, the person who seems to have nothing, or the person who seems to have everything? And in that sense, I think you know the the, the Diogenes paradigm that we're evoking in the book. You know, one of the typical, you know, the archetypal sort of relationships in the story is the relationship between Alexander the Great and 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 Diogenes uh, in the barrel, you know, and Alexander the Great, you know, could be understood, although I think he was probably a lot brighter and, and more sophisticated as a philosopher than, you know, the people that I've just named, Musk or, you know, but, but this relationship between those who are imagined to have terrific power and privilege and those that are imagined to have none are mirror images of each other, really. You know, so, you know, in terms of thinking about unhousedness I find myself drawn to these you know extreme versions you know one has got no house on the earth and the other has got no house on the earth but imagines they can go and find one on Mars or Venus or Jupiter or some other crazy thing you know it's which, which is the most unhoused yeah I think that's uh, a very good illustration uh, Chris you use another terrific phrase, um, shelters don't open until the middle class feel the chill. Um, and then another one, things won't change until white people agree to give up their power and privilege. How do you see that happening? Because that's at the core of the issue, isn't it? Um. Well, I suppose that's a phrase, isn't there, that turkeys never vote for Christmas. Um, so the idea that you know that the privileged and the powerful will give up their power and privilege, I can't think of any hist- historical examples where that's ever happened. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it may be you know, over some negotiation, that there may be some peace agreement, some cessation of violence, 
you know, Northern Ireland or South Africa or somewhere like that. But the war goes on, as, as it were, and, and, and I, 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 I do, in the book, I think we do sort of, think, I think we try to interrogate this quite closely, is, you know, what, what you know, can something be given up? Is there any willingness for anything to be given up? Or does it have to be taken, you know, does it have to be, as it were, a war, a caesura, a caesura that runs through society now and forever? Um, you know, do we need violent revolution? And do we need people gluing themselves to uh, the roads? Do we need, you know, what 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 is it going to take um, for people to listen, uh, the powerful in group to listen? It seems that the evidence that are going to listen to reasoned argument, or even the ballot box, uh, in relation to democratic processes, this is. I, I do feel um, that realistically um, the rich and the powerful and the privileged and the white people are not going to, we're not going to give up our power. Um, so, the, you know, the consequences of, of, of what that means, I think, is at the heart of our book. And it's like trying to say, please, let, you know, let's be a, take this a bit more Seriously, you know, you know the idea that well, we'll give up a little bit. You know, we'll gradually, we'll make a few policies, we'll make a few concessions. Um, it's not, it's not enough. It's not, it's not in time. And I think that's the bit that presses upon me is the, uh, is the idea that, you know, whilst <clears throat> some of us who might be more reasonable and more reasoned or imagine ourselves to be more reasoned in reasons might want to sit down and have conversations about these things. Conversations take time. You know, they take commitment, they take willingness or participation. And I, I, I rather fear that we're running out of it. Um, so that, you know, maybe something a bit less reasonable and a bit less, um, a bit less reasonable might be necessary. And that's what we're, I think we're beginning to see you know, with increasing civil unrest and activism and so on. You know, it's, I, I, I completely understand why that's, you know, why we're in that place. You know, and it is about violence meeting violence, you know. Violence of the oppressor, does it have to be met with the violence of the oppressed? Perhaps so. I mean, that's the dynamic at the moment. Um, but but it's a sort of status quo. This keeps happening: the reciprocal violence between in-group and out-group. And I and I don't think we can. Um, and who are we to make prescriptions, as it were, to the out-group for how? Uh, uh, whoever we understand by that in any given conversation, how those constructed as as not of the in-group uh, uh, should proceed um, um, gradualistically or, or, or kind of revolutionarily or violently but there are but there are there's some obvious moves that could be made it, um, power is increasingly shameless perhaps um, and so uh, very hard it's not enough to expose the workings of power but hashtag welcome the boats rather than hashtag stop the boats please you know let 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 let's um you know if if um if tobacco smoke uh, um uh, is established as as, as going to give you lung cancer, um, 
what about economic growth as a sort of election winner, which uh, both political parties in this country insist is, is, is the thing. We must have economic growth. Well, um, that's just as toxic to our chances of, of settledness uh, uh, as, the, as the smaller example is. So let, let's, let's, not, let's not talk about economic growth. Let's talk about reparations for slavery before, and, and, and worry about economic growth, growth another time. Uh, let's find uh, ways to insist on welcoming the boats. Um, let's uh, 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 note our positionality in 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 sort of every every move that we make. Let's not go along with this idea of co-production that there's a sort of equal hyphen in co-production and that um, a, a pleasant bit of power sharing is going on. Um, power sharing is power retaining, so. Let's, let's not do that. Let's ask what it might look like if someone else was in charge. There's also an example, isn't there? There's examples, I think, about how, you know, we say, well, it needs to be gradual, it needs to be careful, change over, to, you know, time will give a little bit, give a little bit, give a little bit. Um, um, because, you know, this is a big tanker and you can't turn it round. You know, those sorts of metaphors. Um, but I think as was observed, um, I, think it was, I think it was Latour, was it? John, I forget now my... my uh, 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 I just can't recall, you know, but the idea um, that, you know, the, that during the COVID crisis, the idea that we couldn't put, you know, the world mm. economy on hold, um, you know, you know, every, you know, the economy change had to be so gradual, so careful. And yet in the COVID crisis, the whole world managed to readjust its perspective very quickly over a short period of time in order to address something that was threatening to us all. And so the idea that it's not possible was not evidenced in the COVID crisis, it's been observed. You know, the world was, did manage to say, look, actually, something is threatening sufficiently to all of us that we are going to close things down, close down the economic system and stop the trans, uh, uh, people travelling, you know, and so on. But, but if you talk in ordinary times, as it were, to people about the impossibility of financial and democratic change, oh, it takes time, it takes time. A, we don't have any time, and B, the evidence of the COVID crisis is that an awful lot can be achieved in a short time if there's a will to do it. Um, you know, but in whose interests is it to not do it? Is the question that we, 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 that we need to ask? I think it, it well, is. It is a bizarre obscenity. Do you kind of wonder about the motives, yeah. though, given that the government weren't weren't obeying the rules that were? Well, indeed, you know, indeed, so indeed, the rest indeed. of the economy might have shut down, but the government's behaviour would suggest less buy-in from yeah. from them. But I'm conscious of the, the time, and you know, the the kind of conversations I think a lot of people are having these days is is about. I mean, you just used the phrase "power is increasingly shameless," John, and I think you know people are really being left quite aghast at what we see from um, the the ruling powers these days, and conscious that you know, digging into this and reflecting on it deeply to produce a book could could be quite depressing material to be um, steeped in for, for a period of time. I'm just wondering how you've both managed to keep yourself present enough with the material to to think about starting conversations. Mm. I, have a, I have a quick reply to that, if you're thinking about the time, is, is, is that... 
my experience of talking about these things and presenting and writing about these things is that I'm often mistaken for a pessimist. And, and I'm not. I'm, I'm certainly not an optimist either. Um, uh, but I think part of how, how, when, how I sort of keep myself as sane as possible, you know, not, not be overly miserable about it, is... It's to think this is the reality, and that if we want to live in reality and tell the truth, then there is something liberating and freeing about that. Um, and yes, it's a miserable truth, and it's a frightening reality. Um, but I, I do think it, it's better to live in a miserable truth and a frightening reality than to be optimistic without, you know, hope without optimism. Or indeed, you know, despair, um, uh, you know, despairing pessimism, and I don't think that the book is pessimistic. Um, I, it certainly is not optimistic, and I think we are striving to sort of find a place in which we do invite people into thinking about fr frightening reality. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I have a recipe for. Um... Uh, as it were, not being dissociated from from it, or, or that all that I can necessarily attest to being in good shape. But I think um, it must. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a project with. It's it's a long term project with a lot of passion in it, uh, and 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 that that is in itself sustaining. It's sustaining to be sort of take up membership of a kind of community uh, of souls thinking along similar lines and and not be alone with it and if it's if it is it, it is i think it is hard work just as the the day job you know is hard work but i think um that would be uh i don't think it would be unreasonable to say well okay it then it then is incumbent upon me having uh, given given power and privilege and position to try and do something with it, uh, even 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 at a cost. I don't know that might sound vainglorious, but I that thought sustains me. Uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think just to join in, I think I think that word used, uh, John, uh, you know, passion. You know, because I think passion, you know, etymologically, I believe, is the the same root as, as suffering. You know, so and you know that's where we get patient from. You know, for, you know, um, so the the passion, um, you know, to be passionate is to suffer, um, but, uh, but to be passionate is important. You know, so I think there is a an invitation for radical passionate hope, um, from which we will suffer, um, and do I do you know do suffer, <laughs> um, if you like. Um, What's the choice? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good good place to end. But just to stress, this is a rewarding book. It's a book that's packed full of ideas, and we've only kind of scratched the surface here. So thanks very much to the, the two of you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs>